Commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to a, I guess you could call it a special edition of the program here on a Thursday night. Um, and coming off a, off a crazy delay, we were supposed to be coming at you last week, but uh, the storm in Boston last week wiped my power out from Thursday morning until Sunday afternoon, and it was almost uh, almost a transcendent experience in a lot of, a lot of ways, living without power for that long. But uh, fortunately, our guest was cool enough to uh, bump uh, the interview last week to tonight, and so here we are uh, with the program. Uh, and, and I really don't think I could do him justice trying to sort of put together his bio, so I'm going to do it off of the back of the book because, you know, having read the book and having learned uh, about him, you know, in the past, it's like uh, I was still blown away by his stories in the book. And it's like this guy is like the most interesting man in the world. He's like the character from those commercials. Like <laughs> he just – he has had so many incredible experiences, uh, which are documented in the new book, Reality Denied, First-Hand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. I'm talking about John Alexander, Colonel John Alexander, Ph.D., uh, he's a retired senior Army officer with decades of experience with a wide range of phenomena. He's traveled to all eight continents, encountered events that defy common expl- explanations. He's met with shamans in the Amazon, the Himalayas, the Andes, East and West Africa, and northern Mongolia. In Tonga, he dived in open ocean with humpback whales and was involved in telepathic experiments with wild dolphins in the Bahamas. He's a psychic adventurer. Uh, he's done fire walking, psychokinetic metal bending, and uh, caused a white crow to fly for the National Academy of Sciences. He's a founding board member of the IRVA. He's a past president of IANDS, and he can enlighten us as to the, uh, as to the whole thing on these. And a former SSE counselor. Um, he, he worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories. He was involved with uh, Bob Bigelow's NIDS. Like I said, he's really like the most interesting man in the paranormal world. He's been involved in so much stuff. So uh, I, I have a feeling we won't have any shortage of things to talk about tonight. So, Colonel John Alexander, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Do I get my Heineken's now? <laughs> like I said, I was, you know, I'm I'm really amazed just by the sheer variety of uh, of. You know what you've done, what you've looked at, what you've what you've been involved with. Um, you know, I guess what what do you attribute that to? You know, a lot of people get into this and they sort of just find one thing and they 
that's their thing. You know what I mean? Um, you're, you're, you looked at all kinds of stuff across all these different spectrums. I mean, what, which I try to do here on this show, I've done over the years. But I mean, what do you, what do you attribute uh, on your end? You know that that variety of interests. Well, I think there's commonality, quite frankly, in one of the slides I use in um, all of my briefings now up front. It has all of those things that you mentioned from remote viewing, near-death experiences to UFOs, cryptozoology, firewalking, psychokinesis, foltergeist, etc., etc., and go on and on. And I believe that there is a common factor, and that factor probably is human consciousness. And the problem is we do not understand. Uh, Let me be up front and say I do have an agenda, and I usually say it is to try and assist in getting the best and brightest scientists uh, involved in studying these issues without risking the reputation to their livelihood uh, or career. And uh, we haven't got that now. And I think, again, these issues are at least as complex as AIDS or cancer. And yet when we compare the... um, amount of research that goes into it, either funding or man hours, it, it's just simply minuscule. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, yeah, I noticed you, you made that point in the book, too, where it's like I had never thought of it that way, but, indeed, uh, these phenomena are clearly they're as complex as, as, as cancer and AIDS because we can't figure those out either, you know. So it's like and, – and, and the gulf between the difference in the funding between the two – uh, sciences, uh, for lack of a better term, or research endeavors, uh, is, is pretty is pretty stunning. Well, one of the problems is that the people involved tend to stovepipe these things. Um, I give lots of lectures on different topics, and you've mentioned some like remote viewing, uh, near death, uh, uh, psychokinesis, uh, and. What's of interest to me is that there are, each one of these areas has communities, and many of them don't even know the other folks exist. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. The commonality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've experienced that personally myself. Yeah, I went on some on an event like in uh, looking at the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, and we were in the midst of putting together a paranormal event uh, in up here in Mass and. I was telling one of the people, you know, the attendees on this Bridgewater Triangle thing, I was telling them about the event, and, um, you know, I was like, yeah, we're going to have Nick Redfern up there. And even and, so, and she's a big ghost person, and she had no idea who Nick Redfern was. She'd never even heard of him. And it was like, Nick Redfern's written about all kinds of He's been all over the map. Like, how do you not, how have you not heard of Nick, Nick Redfern? So, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, you know, beyond even... You know, at least it's getting a little better. I, I like to think with some of the researchers, but as far as sort of like the the people who are who are into these subjects, they you know they're like they follow their team, and that's it. It's pretty crazy. Well, part of the issue uh, for many of them is that they have had some personal experience, and it's often in a limited area. Uh, be it a near-death experience or other sign of kind of you know psychokinetic, or they've seen a UFO or something, and yeah. they go off in that direction, which is understandable. But it's not until you step back and start looking at the common factors that you come to an understanding that no, this is far more complex than 
again that we ever imagined. Now, I got to ask you about uh, all this stuff that's going on in the UFO thing, world, because uh, you know, you obviously you were part of NIDS. You know Bob Bigelow. Um, you know he's intimately, at least, connected with this Pentagon story. Uh, he's not, as far as I can tell, involved with the two of the stars folks who are sort of uh, telling the world about it. But clearly, uh, based on what we know, he was. You know, he was the guy who the who who was who was sort of like running running the show in a sense. I know Hector Elizondo was running the program, but he was the one you know who kind of um, who the Pentagon turned to to uh, to make it happen. So I guess, what's your initial thought about this? Because it was like really a pretty stunning revelation, and I know you've spent a lot of time looking at UFOs and sort of trying to trying to engender kind of what it sounds like they were doing at the Pentagon, um, you know, behind closed doors during that time. Well, in reality, I did the same thing 30 years ago Hmm. uh, when I was still on active duty, and I put together a group uh, very much akin to what he did. Where uh, Alessandro was more successful than I was is that he was able to get some funding. But I had participants from all of the intelligence uh, agencies uh, from aerospace, from all the services, uh, and it was run at a top-secret SCI level of uh, just because we thought that the information was there. I might mention that our going-in position was that somebody's in charge and that uh, we're going to get our hands slapped, uh, which is going to be okay. That's why we kept it so uh, highly classified. Um, and the big finding was almost identical to what they uh, have found. Uh, I should mention I know most, uh, but not all, of the people who are involved with the Two of the Stars and several are personal friends. Yeah. Um, but the big finding was nobody is in charge. And I think that that bears out, as I understand it, that, uh, uh, you know, as Alessandro was retiring and the New York Times was about to publish the story, it was uh, only a short time, like minutes to hours before that, that Secretary Mattis found out about the program. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. that, uh, In fact, that Alessandro and uh, Mattis actually knew each other. They had had experiences uh, in Afghanistan. Huh. So uh, the point is, you know, yeah, small compartmented uh, effort. Uh, My experience was that um, I had done this for years, had briefed at very, very high levels, even higher, I think, than what uh, uh, he had experienced. Um, And then we finally decided to ask for money. Uh, You might remember the old Star Wars program or strategic defense initiative and so we were meeting with general abramson who was then the director of sdi and had a lot of money he had a you know a five billion dollar program at the time and um, that was kind of an interesting experience i was not alone i had representatives from various parts of the intel community and aerospace with me we started out with a basic discussion. He did not know 
the topic uh, before I arrived. This had been set up by a mutual friend, a general officer. And uh, so what happened is I started talking. I started the briefing, and we were going around. We said, wait, wait, wait. Who are you guys really? I mean, had a hard time even believing what we were talking about. Um, the long story short was after a while we convinced him and, and showed him some stuff from then Soviet uh, intercepts. And he says, um, look, as an old fighter pilot, I, you know, he got my attention, I'm interested, but I can't touch this. And he said, look, I'm doing some hairy stuff right now, but if I get caught you know, funding UFO research, they're going to kill me. And, in fact, his budget was under attack at the time and literally went down a, a billion dollars. Yeah. The point here, and we can talk about uh, what happened with Alessandro because I think it was exactly the same thing, is that, yeah, you can muck about at lower levels and that's fine. But if your visibility rises too much, and particularly in resources, which are a zero-sum game, yeah, uh, you can get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Now, I, I we, we can explore that uh, more. I, I, one thing that's sort of like planted into a seed in my head coming out of this story, and since you say you were involved in a similar program, maybe you uh, maybe you encountered this as well. Um, is is this whole thing about the alien alloys? Uh, do you know anything about that aspect of this story? Because uh, you know, I don't know if you're. I presume you're familiar with what, what's come out. You know, from the Times piece that that they have some kind of material. You know that they can't explain, but it's very very nebulous and vague. Um, and I know uh, our mutual friend George Knapp tried to track it down, and you know he really kind of got a lot of the same sort of answers. Uh, you know that he really couldn't sort of pin anybody down exactly on what, what exactly we're talking about other than maybe like some kind of piece of metal that's uniquely constructed. I think that's like the, the most we've, we've learned about this. But do you know anything about this um, mysterious alloys aspect of the story? Well, nothing more than what you do. I mean, I've <laughs> yeah. many of the same pieces and talk to the same people, obviously. You know, George is a personal friend and lives here. Uh, and we... Um, you know, I, but let me drop back again. Thirty mm-hmm. years ago, there was material available and looked at, and it was kind of strange. Uh, what I don't know, and I do not, um, well, Bigelow Aerospace handled the uh, contract. I would have thought, because I know what we did at NIDS, and that was to subcontract out uh, various kinds of material that came in. This was not the certainly not the first piece that we yeah. saw from NIDS, uh, but you've got to find laboratories with the resources necessary to be able to examine these things. Um, and pretty much what you hear is this is not unobtainium, meaning you know new uh, minerals, right, or, right, yeah. uh, things of that sort. Rather, the engineering aspects of it. And we do know that, you know, what's happening in uh, the micro world and micro engineering, flat, uh, you know, engineering down at uh, certainly molecule, if not atomic levels, uh, it produces some very interesting things. Uh, Where it came from, don't know. 
I also argue that unobtainium is not necessary um, for, you know, UFOs in general. Meaning they could just be built out of regular stuff, or? Well, one of the things I omitted, and I usually start my UFO discussions by saying, what do you mean? And the reason I say that is that, uh, as you know, there are stories of, you know, little balls of light that are flying around, not to mention orbs and that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got hard craft that are a mile or more across and thousands of variations in between. Right. I likened the phenomenon to clouds uh, up to to people trying to understand. That's problematic. And I also take on the uh, ETH or extraterrestrial hypothesis because that answer is just too simple unless we think that Earth is on the galactic bucket bucket list of places that uh, aliens have got to visit. Right, right, yeah. Just too many of them. And even with visitors, and we can probably talk about that, but, um, uh, you know, the wide variations just are, in my view, problematic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, you said 30 years ago... I'm just I'm staying on this uh, alien alloys for a moment. I apologize, uh, but it's like a it's like a an itch I can't scratch. Um, the you said 30 years ago you guys encountered some stuff. So like what was the let's let's talk about what what firsthand experience you have uh, as far as what this stuff was. Because since we don't know what the what the what the Pentagon program from the yeah. from from five years ago or whatever it was, uh, at least we can find out what you had. Yeah, the material I was talking about with NIST is not the same material as came in, uh, mm-hmm. came in under this uh, auspices. Um, oh, we had some that was delivered. Uh, I'm reaching back a ways now. NIDS has actually been down for quite a few years. But <coughs> this was things that supposedly had, uh, you know, slag or something dropping off. Uh, of a UFO. Remember, there are stories, uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s and around there, people seeing UFOs go up and things flying and some metallic substances dripping off. Uh, I had heard the same thing um, out of Brazil, and there was some of that material available, and people would, uh, in this case, send it to us and send it out to, um, again, other laboratories that had the technical capability necessary to um, examine it. Yeah. And that, you know, came back as, you know, mildly interesting, but, you know, nothing that uh, is indicative of unique engineering or uh, some foreign origin. Yeah. Right, right. Um, interesting, interesting. It's all very, yeah, I mean, this whole thing is very... Uh, very interesting about what's going on now with this with this news coming out. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember sort of your stance on on this disclosure thing that everyone you know everyone's all worked up. They've been fighting for disclosure for years, and um, a lot of people see this as sort of like a situation, uh, you know, sort of a pre a prelude to it or confirmation, as I've heard it described. Well, um, what do you think you is going on here? Disclosure for me. I suppose my idea of disclosure would be, uh, on a, just for me personally, all I'm looking for is just sort of like the the government to sort of like give 
give the green light to the reality of the phenomenon, the the mysterious phenomenon. You know, so in my in my mind, it's like they're they're closer to what I'm I'm uh, I'm happy with. I, I don't necessarily I'm not I'm not one of these people hold holding out for uh, the president to like trot out an alien at a podium. Like I know that's not going to happen, but I think if they were like I have an alien at the podium. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people that like what, thinks they're going to come out and just tell us every. I, I, I'm of the opinion they probably don't know what's going on. So it's like I just wish they would say, "Hey, we don't know what's going on," and and so, but it's okay to look and let's let's you know let's all look and try and figure this out instead of just pretending like it doesn't happen or exist. That, yeah, that's like my to run with that a bit. Um, first of all, you know, I keep hearing stories about how the Pentagon denies the reality of UFOs and all that. And that's just patently not true. Uh, They have been acknowledging the reality of the substance, certainly since the Twining memo, among things, that, hey, this is real. Now, that is very different from, and therefore we're interested and we're going to be involved. you're familiar, I'm sure, with all the studies that went on, sign, grudge, blue book, etc. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what became the Colorado report, and where I take heat is uh, from some quarters, is when I say Condon was right. Because the question to Condon, who was looking at the Air Force data, most of it, he obviously didn't get all, but it was, are UFOs a threat? It was not. Are UFOs, Are UFOs real? real? Right, yeah. Uh, now, it's interesting in the report because, you know, they they were both correct, i.e., haven't seen an th- uh, invasion in the intervening period, uh, but I think they were also wrong when they made the uh, pronouncement that said, and there's no scientific advantage that would be gained from studying these things. That, I think, is a mistake. Where I take it a step farther is I don't think this belongs in the government. And we can address that, but you've got to remember this is a global phenomenon. happens all over the world. Yeah, the Pentagon and, or the government has access to sensor systems that are probably unique and uh, some capability. But this is, frankly, too big for the government. And, you know, ought to be combining all the resources uh, necessary to, uh, and again, on a global basis. And as you know, this is did not start in 1947. Uh, as Jacques uh, has pointed out, some of this goes back millennia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's the... It's interesting. It's just interesting because it's like you get the imp- I, I get the impression that like uh, that that the government sort of tamped this down. Like they don't want anyone to really look at it, whether or not they're involved or not. But but they're not really too involved from what I can from what I seem to be able to understand. Because you know these programs, like the one that you say you were involved with, and and then this you know this one recently, it's like they kind of come and go, but then nothing ever comes out of it. Right. Well, remember again the the major finding by both of us is nobody's in charge. In my case, uh, I and another individual got interested and said, let's put the group together 
uh, did not take a lot of money, but we knew the people and, you know, had access to the uh, intelligence community and the people involved, found like-minded individuals and said, let's study this. Again, I told you, we thought that we were going to get our hands slapped. And I had had experience in which uh, got into black programs and, you know, may not know what was in it, but you damn sure know that you tripped over it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't leave any doubt in your mind about that. And that did not happen. It, we kept going to, as I said, higher and higher levels. Um, many of them said, gee, that's interesting. Uh, one more story that I do tell, I was talking to the director of one of those three-letter agencies. I'll be more specific now. It was the agency that uh, Lou actually uh, worked for, DIA. This was former director. He says, A, we don't do that because we do not have a requirement. One of the big problems, by the way, is most people have no idea how the government works, um, but these are requirements-driven. So we do not have a requirement to do that. But, B, I'll tell you about the ones I saw. Huh. So here was an individual who had had a personal experience some years before, seeing things that were flying around that had capabilities that he knew exceeded anything that was available at the time. Um, and just wasn't. So what happens... There's probably been some more, as guys like me, uh, Lou, in his case, said, gee, look at this data, let's uh, let's try and, and sort it out. Yeah. I might mention one of the things that we happen, you're probably familiar, you may want to talk about the uh, Nimitz case, but in my book, uh, UFOs, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, I have an example um, I had been uh, an inspector general uh, at the Department of Army level in the Pentagon, and um, <clears throat> had a, a friend. People knew that I was interested in weird stuff, and that was okay as long as I, you know, did the, the straight work uh, as yeah. long as they were concerned. And uh, here were some uh, individuals. They were up in Alaska with the uh, Eskimo scouts, and literally in a drawer you know they found a bunch of reports where the eskimo scouts had been out uh, literally seal hunting um, and were coming back with reports of craft that you know defy description and these are people who remember their their life literally depends on being able to uh, be observant of what's going on in their environment. Right, right, right. And uh, came back with some pretty amazing stuff. And yet, the result was it just sat in the drawer until somebody found it. And by what you mean when you say like, like they say it's not their requirement, it's like it's, they're sort of saying like, hey, this UFO thing, that's not our responsibility. So we don't, we're not going to really like take a proactive approach to this. No, one of the key issues though that I think people do miss in this is that there are millions of people in the government. Well, of course, if you look at DOD over, you know, 50 years intervening, there's a number of million of people. We anticipate that about uh, 10% of the adult population have seen something that they believe, you know, to be a UFO or cannot identify. 
admittedly, 90, probably 95% of that have prosaic uh, answers. Uh, but the point is that, like the civilian population, people in the government at about the same level also have these experiences and have many of the same questions. Hmm. Right, right. Oh, I'm sure of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's, you know, across all walks of life, there are people in, uh, you know, who have had these experiences. It's just, it's just really strange. There's sort of like a mental block where, um, you know, and I'm sure you've encountered this a million times, where it's like it, you, you sort of tell someone what you're involved with, a stranger, you know, like at a bar somewhere, and then they start telling you their story. It's like, it's like people can kind of connect on you know, on a one-on-one level, but from, uh, across the you know, there's like a there's like a social block on this stuff. It's very uh, it's maddening in a sense for those of us who have been looking at it for a long time. Well, that's one of the key reasons for writing the book. I got to ask that question: Why do I write it? Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with, as you know, a wide range of phenomena mentioned there. But it's amazing how you go out and you start talking to people about these things, and how many. Uh, you know, like your friends in the bar come up and say, oh, yeah, and it's not just UFOs. That's one of the topics, certainly near-death experience and all of that. But we guess that, what, 70% of the um, population, certainly adult population, have had experience with some kind of phenomena. And I'd argue that at least another 20% probably have, just don't want to admit it. So... These things are ubiquitous, and, and I think there's a necessity, if we're going to understand it, to gather more data and just make it permissible to uh, study these things and converse about them rationally. Yeah. Well, that's the, on a personal level, that's sort of the hope that I have coming out of the this latest news, you know. But I know you're not a big fan of conspiracy, so it's like, I, I have a hesitant to ask you, but it's like, uh, you know, a lot of people in the UFO community, they've got their haunches up about this because, you know, they don't they don't trust anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to see the scars? Yeah, exactly. You know, a, a UFO could land on the White House lawn. The only people that wouldn't believe it are the UFO people. So, Well, the problem that I have with many in the UFO community mm-hmm. is that, um, uh, you know, if you do not believe entirely their whole preconceived story and it can be pretty convoluted and sometimes you know demonstrably false uh, falsifiable uh, then you become the enemy uh, yeah. you, you might know in fact one of the slides that I use again in, in all of these things is that if you want to participate in phenomena there are three things that you must have uh, the first one is a thick skin because you're going to be attacked. And I don't care what your position is, somebody's going to attack you. Um, another one is that you better understand conspiracy theory because either you believe there are these conspiracies or if you deny that, you are now part of that conspiracy. <laughs> and finally... You probably ought to have a day job or be independently wealthy because you're not going to make a lot of money at it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting. So, yeah. 
to me, it's like you can't really – I'm just along for the ride, you know. So it's like I'm just watching this thing unfold, and I'll, we'll see how it goes. You know what I mean? As far as the, the, all this, this latest uh, – if there's some kind of agenda behind all this. You know I, I mean? think you're going to find that uh, the ride will take you along. <laughs> you remember, I, I have published something called Alexandra's Law of Appropriate Complexity. And what that says is everybody is faced in their life with various kind of complex issues that they're trying to resolve. And it can be at any level, from, you know, funding, research, or whatnot. Yeah. But about the time that you think you've got it all figured out, something comes along. It's almost like a computer game. And something comes along, and here is a whole new order of complexity, and you find you're at the bottom going uphill. But he keeps coming to you, and the doors keep opening. Yeah. Interesting. That's an interesting uh, observation, yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I, I I'm only going to ask you, I guess, one more question about this this latest sort of developments because I feel like you you're, you're like the closest I know of anyone who is at least tangentially connected to some of these people involved. So I apologize, you know, for being maybe too intrusive. But I guess what I what I what, I, what a lot of people wonder in this uh, field is like what what is Bob Bigelow trying to do with with you know all of this funding and all of this research. Because, like, the, to a lot of the people on the outside, we never really kind of find out what, what kind of conclusions he's coming to or anything. Yeah. Uh, well, bottom line is you'd have to ask. Yeah, uh, I know that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but I think that's worth addressing a bit. I, I think that Bob has probably put more money into the UFO research than – probably anybody else. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's been minuscule amounts from time to time. <clears throat> Sorry, we can talk about Skinwalker Ranch and some of those things, which I do think are related. Right, right. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I do hope that they start publishing more. Uh, he tends to be a collector. Now, frankly, his main interest uh, is in Bigelow Aerospace. And if folks haven't seen it, I would recommend uh, the 60 Minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where you get to watch his inflatable unit. Um, now that, I mean, not not sure, but we're talking a couple of hundred million. The program that uh, Alessandro developed and Harry Reid came up, as I understand it, and I'll take them at their word, that this was actually competed. And frankly, almost nobody else uh, in aerospace wanted to touch it, which does not surprise me. And that he won the uh, bid, you know, outright. Yeah. The other aspect to that is that, as you know, they're talking around $22 million over a period of five years. So you amortize that out, it comes out a little over $4 million a year. In Pentagon funding in these days, you're not even making lunch money. I mean, this is yeah, yeah. really very, very small uh, amounts of funding, and, uh, you know, uh, not sure exactly how, where all of it went to. I think a lot of it went into uh, personnel costs and travel and things of that nature. Um, but and I think what's key, and again, folks don't realize, 
um, I mentioned before the the funding aspect uh, to this, and that what happened was uh, over time, as long as it was kept quiet and you know below the surface, um, was okay. As they started to become better known, and the funding was there, uh, sure enough, people came at it. Again, this gets back to not understanding the government, Mm -hmm. because funding is a zero-sum game. And, um, you know, one of the big things that I used to laugh at was in the Pentagon, people were saying, running around saying, I'm going to go find the money and all this, like there's hidden buckets of money someplace. Yeah. But that's not true. What it means is that you've got to find a program, and basically you're raiding somebody else's program, and they've got to get together and compete. And even in the black world, uh, there's fierce competition for resources. At $4 million, yeah, you can stay below most radars, but... What happened here is once people started saying, "Oh, there's a bucket of money over here," even if it's only a few money, a few million, and earmarked, you have to watch reprogramming levels. And the budget system is terribly uh, complicated hmm. uh, and not worth understanding, other than to say, "Yeah, it, it's highly competitive and uh, you know, very complex." Um, and sure enough, other people started coming after them. And this is very much akin to what uh, Abrahamson had told me, you know, 30 years ago when he said, I can't touch it because if I do, you know, they'll come after my money. Yeah. And they did. Interesting, yeah. Well, just to circle back, you know, I don't begrudge, I certainly don't begrudge Bigelow uh, for for putting all the time and effort and money into this. It's just like, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm outside the, the, the gated community. Like what's going on in there? What's this guy? What's he, what are they doing? You know, it's like, it's just very, uh, after all this time, it's like, I wish he would just like have someone, I, I know they put out the Skinwalker book, but like even, you know, sort of an, another, another, uh, bite of the apple here on what he's, what he's, uh, managed to document over the years and stuff. One of the things I've heard him say repeatedly, when he first started the company and people wanted in, he refused to accept anybody's uh, external money uh, just from a control factor. But the other was, he would joke and say, well, what's the fastest way for a billionaire to become a millionaire? And it's invest in aerospace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well... Who knows, though? It's starting, it seems like, <laughs> unless you're like Elon Musk, right? <laughs> um, all right, well, well, we'll move into some of the stuff from the book now because I, I feel like a, I don't want to shortchange this amazing book because it's absolutely um, – it's compelling stuff. It really is. It's it's fantastic. As I, as I joked with you at the beginning, like, like the most interesting uh, different – all these – I just couldn't get over all the different uh, – different things you were involved with. Um, the one thing that really kind of stood out for me is, I, I don't know if it's just sort of like, because it has a like, sort of weird, like I'm imagining like this could be made into a movie or something, but um, the, the, the this, these spoon-bending parties 
uh, that you were involved with. I assume they were in the 70s. Uh, I couldn't really pin down the date on that. Um, uh, early 80s. Oh, early 80s. Okay, that's even even more movie worthy then. Yeah. So, like, what what t- tell tell the listeners here? I mean, I read I read the part in the book. I was just uh, blown away by it, and literally, actually, after I was after I finished reading that. I, I was in my office trying to trying to bend a spoon, but I'm just some I you know I I couldn't do it after just reading the chapter in the book. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. But um, like how to do it. But well, there is an addendum that specifically describes the PK parties. How so? What do you, what do you mean an addendum? In the book, mm. a, there is a how-to in addition to the chapters where I talk about. Uh, uh, PKMB in, in general. Uh, well, we might mention that uh, Uri Geller, uh, you know, did the forward uh, for the book. Yeah. And so the metal bending uh, material actually came from him as a prototype. Um, but there was an aerospace engineer at McDonnell Douglas by the name of Jack Houck, who unfortunately has uh, transitioned uh, a few, just a few years ago. But Jack uh, became interested in metal bending and looking what Uri was doing and wondering if they couldn't come up with a process whereby this could be a transferable skill, like something one could learn. And uh, so what he did is he developed a party uh, format that's in there. Uh, we had heard about this um, I guess it's about 82 and uh, had attended one party and at this time I was working at INSCOM Intelligence and Security Command and my boss was uh, Bert Stubblebine who was the Major General and the Commanding Officer of INSCOM which is a global uh, had global responsibilities um and so, uh, anyway, had, I had attended one, thought this was interesting, so uh, Jack happened to have contracts that brought him back to Washington. Uh, he, lived, he was at uh, uh, Huntington Beach, and brought him back to Washington fairly re- uh, frequently. So we set up a PK party um, and invited uh, Stubblevine was there. Um, do you know Andrea Poharich? The name rings a bell, and I'm sure I've talked about him on the show in, in the past. But well, I, 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 I mentioned on Andrea. Yeah. We can. That, that's uh, kind of a different uh, venue. But Andrea was a the guy who brought Corey to the U.S. and also had been involved uh, from a military perspective in these areas from probably the 50s or so. He was a MD with a very unusual uh, background and, and interests. Uh, but anyway, um, we, uh, the reason I bring it up is uh, Andrea was there and his wife, uh, Rebecca, whom I just uh, reestablished contact with a week or so ago. Um, and uh, among the key people that was there was uh, Ann Gaiman, who was a phenomenal uh, medium, and she appears at various places throughout the book. Um, but what's significant is that we have this about 20 people in, in a, kind of a roughly a elliptical circle sitting on the floor. And as we're getting to the advanced stages, picture a 
group of us are around uh, holding a pair of matchforks by the base. No physical force uh, being applied whatsoever. And she is directly across from uh, Bert uh, Subelbine. And all of a sudden, her fork just drops 90 degrees. Again, absolutely no physical force applied. She'd never done this before or anything. And we went, whoa. <laughs> we went yeah. That's what I was saying. We need to look at this. <coughs> and uh, from that, you know, developed, you know, the process. I might mention I had taken a lot of heat periodically. Uh, not everybody was enthusiastic. I'll point that out. Yeah. Wide range of belief systems. And uh, one of the questions I would get is, what are you going to do, Ben, tank barrels? And my answer is no. I'm going to go after electrons and just make I, – I do not have to destroy computers. I just have to make them unreliable. Yeah. Which, at, remember, we're talking early 80s now, so we're just starting to look at the potential for, you know, what has now become cyber war. Yeah. It's I, I owe you an apology because I yeah I see I usually uh, you know when I finish a book I when I get to the index I usually just close it and now I'm looking here and like after the index there is a there's a, a metal a metal bending party instructions so I'm gonna have to do you need is it here's an interesting question um, do you now I know obviously just based on you know what what uh, you write in the book that the answer is no not necessarily but is it is it sort of better if you're going to accomplish this bending to be like in a group of people, you think, or or like if you're just sitting there in your basement by yourself no, trying, is it not as potent? Yeah. Um, I think groups are better. There are a few people who have done it uh, independently, particularly when you get up to the, we call the graduate level of spontaneous bending that we've just been talking about. Yeah. But we do believe, and a lot of this is purely hypothetical because we cannot prove a lot of it. What we can prove is the bending occurred. have not got a good handle on why or how. But we do think from observation that there is an emotional component to it, hence the group. And what Jack would say, his job was to be a cheerleader. And, you know, I frankly like groups of 20 or more, um, but I I did not care for over 50. have done bigger groups. And the problem when you get into big groups, you just can't see and keep track of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. People and other agendas that are, you know, running concurrently. Uh, But what you now should mention that when you begin the PK process, you do allow people to use some physical force. And so they are using often both hands. And what will happen as you go through the process as described, you go bend, 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 and then be holding and feeling. Now, people will frequently say they can feel the contextual change. And the words to describe that are it became usually warm or malleable. Uh, it can uh, sometimes they'll say, well, it felt cold or like plastic or whatever. And when this 
noticeable change takes place, you just take your hand and you just roll these things up. You may have seen pictures of them. Uh, uh, just, and it, it's like it just, hard to explain, it just rolls up and then all of a sudden it freezes and stops in the configuration. Um, and that's important to, you know, create the reality or um, uh, and accept a reality that this is possible. And the model, here's where Uri, we think, was really critical, is what he provided was the theoretical model that says, this can happen. And it was from there that Jack had worked out, and then as we got on, I mean, he did hundreds of party. He was also, uh, as an engineer, just an inveterate uh, data collector and kept track of everything. Uh, unfortunately, he had the worst case of diabetes I have ever seen. Oh, Ended up slowly losing body parts. Um, but as long as he could, he continued to you know, run these things. And again, getting back to the issue of emotion. And I likened it unto like popcorn that you're in there. What would happen is if you're in a circle, we normally were configured, and it would two or three people in one place, and you would encourage them to shout out and say, "Wow, look at this!" You know, get people excited, and it's it is happening. And we go in one place, and then it would erupt someplace else, and say it's kind of like popcorn and infectious. Yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. And then, I had to point out, we had some very, very dramatic, spontaneous bendings. This did not happen all the time. One of the most exasperating aspects was, you know, not having, being able to control, uh, totally control, you know, what was happening uh, in the phenomena. We did do photomoscopy on, uh, you know, i.e., literally grind up some of the things that uh, had been bent and of interest is it looked like heat i.e. it looks as if they had been exposed to very very high temperatures far beyond anything you could do and we did testing with the thermistors to see you know if you rub it how much can you uh, increase you know using uh, hand friction and things, and the answer is not very much. And yet, it looked like heat, but we know that no heat had been applied. Hmm. It's it's fascinating. It, it feels like the kind of thing that I want to be able to do someday. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and you know uh, learn if I see if I can do it. Um, well, there are people um, around who do. You know, PK events uh, yeah. periodically. So, interesting. If you have a group in the area, again, I encourage that uh, you get a group and somebody who understands a little bit about uh, how the process works. It's really very, very simple. I might mention that uh, typically we would talk uh, maybe two hours or so, start to finish, and you started doing things that include dowsing. Uh, what you would do is you would, after an explanation of what's going on and why we believe it's real, it would take the, the whole bunch of cutlery out, 
people bring it. Now, one of the problems that we have, and I would warn anybody in your listening audience in there, <clears throat> people would classically show up with a spoon or a fork. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've had this, uh, I did this in the Amazon a few times in Iquitos at uh, Shaman's Conference, and invariably people would have one piece, and you go, you really want, you know, eight or ten pieces. Um, because once this bending starts, I mean, you go through it really, really quickly. Um, so you're like physically, see, we start out, you're physically bending it like, like uh, you're just bending it as if you're trying to bend a spoon with your hands, just like, just to sort of get, to uh, get, get, I don't know, get the rhythm going or something? Yeah. Well, okay. once you find that you can bend, as I said, we were talking in the initial phases, you are using some physical force, and you are seeing a change. But, I mean, once you've done the first one, you can go second, third, fourth just immediately. Ah, I see what you're saying. Okay. very quickly. And the problem, like I say, uh, one of the issues got to be finding old cutlery. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you a war story that might be kind of cute for your audience, but uh, <clears throat> in 19, I think it was 82, the, you had the centennial of the British Psychical Society, which was uh, formed at Cambridge uh, University at Trinity College, and it was also the bicentennial of the American Society of Psychical Research, and we met and went to uh, Cambridge. And uh, uh, there was a professor, John Hastert, who was very uh, interesting. I described uh, most of this in the book. Yeah. Uh, Hastert was a physicist at uh, Birkbeck College, but was very interested in the topic and heard about it. So he asked uh, me, and I was with another individual who was visiting at the time, if we would have a PK party. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, it turns out, in, in, you know, all throughout the U.K. At, at that time, you know, um, stores closed at uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, so coming up with cutlery was uh, a bit difficult. So we put out the word, said, okay, we will do this, but, you know, limit it to 20 people, and we'll run the party. Which we did, but the problem is the word got out, and we literally barred the doors at 50 people. Yeah. And at an interesting uh, PK event, kind of all of what we had been doing in the U.S. Well, Hested got uh, very excited, so the next day he made a public announcement that says, "Okay, we're going to do this again." Everybody's everybody can come, but you must come up with your own silverware. Turns out that that night was the formal banquet, <laughs> and the everybody, most of them, absconded with the material, and all of it was stamped with um, TCK or uh, yeah, Tr- Trinity College kit. Meaning the real silver. <laughs> University was not impressed. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. They lost an awful lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, I, it's funny. I'll have a, I'll, I'll I'll be with a gathering of about twenty people in about a month down in New Orleans, and uh, so maybe we'll maybe we'll try maybe I'll bone up on how to do it from the back of the book there, and uh, see if we can get it done down in New it's Orleans. It's easy to follow and just be a cheerleader. Yeah, and believe. I mean that one of the things we have found. I can tell you that um, the, probably the worst parties that I had took place in two places. One of them was at the Parapsychological Association because they, while they may say they want to study this, they desperately do not want something to happen. <laughs> and the other was in a uh, actual lab, night vision lab at uh, Fort Belvoir, and this was engineers on hallowed ground who similarly do not want this to happen. And Jack said the worst that he had was at, where I later went to work was at uh, Los Alamos. However, what you do want to get is kids. You know, kids are really great because they have a belief system that says, "Hey, maybe this uh, can happen." Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Like, uh, another side story, when we're at it, um, when they say we do not have magicians involved, that is patently not true. And um, I don't know, do you remember Doug Henning? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, Doug had gone off to follow Maharishi, uh, but he, at this time, was at the height of his career, and um, I had met him in uh, Washington. I was living in uh, I was still, of course, on active duty and living in uh, Northern Virginia, and so we set up a uh, PK party uh, for him to come to and observe. And uh, there were two things that happened. The first guy that had spontaneous bending was his manager, so he knew that that was not something that we could have, uh, you know, set up. Yeah. Uh, the other was uh, an 11-year-old girl, and that's the one that just blew him away. Uh, you know, Doug was interested, and, you know, he started out by telling me, oh, you know, oh, there's all these tricks and all this, and he goes, well, what am I saying? I, he had watched various miraculous events uh, with Maharishi Mahesh Yoga uh, directly with him, and it was watching this 11-year-old girl that he found just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, because presumably, and I I, 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 I think that's, you mentioned it in the book, that's how you kind of got him at the thing, was to see how how it could be faked. Like, I give you a tremendous amount of credit for that, because a lot of people like, you know, who, who, who would be, I don't know, advocates for this kind of thing. Like, they wouldn't even want to, you know, it would be verboten to talk about the fakery involved. But it's like, how, I guess somebody could fake fake it somehow. I'm not sure exactly how. Oh, do, do there you guys, are plenty of ways to fake it. How would you fake it? Well, um, one of the current magicians I would recommend is Alon New. Uh, he's in the Washington area and gives programs. Um, very interesting. We had something here in Las Vegas called Symposium that he and a couple of others put on. And it was a combination of, you know, looking at real uh, psi phenomena as well as how to fake it. We actually taught people, you know, how to do it. And there are ways. I will warn you that when you see somebody 
uh, put their hands around the neck of a uh, fork uh, or a uh, spoon, whatever they're bending, probably fake. And it was very interesting. Um, are you familiar with the SSE? Yeah, yeah. The Society for Scientific Exploration mm-hmm. uh, was at a uh, conference uh, with them, and there was an individual who got up and gave a presentation on uh, what he thought was, you know, real psi. And they had videotaped uh, the whole thing, and he showed the videotape of the thing bending, etc. And he got very upset when I went in and said, sorry, you know, that's not real. <laughs> and I know how the guy did it, and I, I saw the move, And if you, but you have to know, you know, what you're looking for. They got right. really, you know... <laughs> Oh, they're good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were staking reputation on it. Right. Um, And, you know, like I said, sometimes it happens. And and there's a host of ways to to fake it, by the way. So um, I might mention, we had talked about Uri, and I'm frankly looking at uh, a spoon as we speak here. Um, One of the stories I tell her, we're in the literally in the U.S. Capitol building uh, itself, and there was a secure, uh, uh, what's called a skip, uh, secure facility that was there, and Uri was in to talk primarily about the plight of Soviet Jews. This was still the bad old days Soviet Union existed, and he was concerned about, you know, getting more to be allowed to immigrate to uh, Israel. And that was the thrust of what he wanted to talk about. But as might be anticipated, uh, everybody started bend something, bend something. And, uh, he goes, well, I'm going to need to bend. And importantly, the, uh, they went out and found a spoon that is literally in a guard's coffee cup. And the reason that's important is you nobody can claim that he had access to it before and put, you know, magic material on it or something that weakened it or anything right, of right. that nature. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a yeah, it, it came from outside so his, his control. He, he didn't pull it out of his pocket and say, oh, I just happen to have, um, even though it was predictable. So I'm, I kind of anticipated this. And I'm with another general, and we're sitting – Oh, just uh, maybe four feet in the front row, directly in front of him. And I have worked uh, again with Doug and other magicians, so I knew many of the uh, techniques for faking it. And Uri took the bowl of the spoon and, with one finger, gently from above, not having the neck disappear, came down and stroked it and whatnot, and slowly the handle bent upwards. Again, no physical force being applied. And he did that for a little bit, and then he put the spoon on the back of a chair that was sitting there and went on talking. And while he's talking, the spoon, I can see it is continuing to bend. And then it fell on the floor and somehow ended up in my pocket. <laughs> we got to spread this stuff around. 
Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Okay, well, I'm going to pivot to a different topic here because uh, I, I love this stuff. I, I feel like uh, I could talk to you all day on a whole bunch of different stuff, I feel. So it's like we, we want to cover as much as we can in a sense. Um, and, and there was one thing that jumped out at me in the book because uh, I've been kind of – I, I kind of fancy myself like a sociologist of this field, uh, of these fields, John. You know, I sort of study the study the, the groups that are studying, if you will. And I've I've been really fascinated by. I hope you, I hope this doesn't raise your blood pressure, uh, by these targeted individuals, quote unquote. And you talk about it because I don't really, I find it really hard to believe. And so I was relieved when I got to the part in the book where you talk about it and you, you pretty much, you know, you're, you're not a fan, let's say, of the targeted individuals. Uh, conspiracy, I guess you'd call it. I don't know. It's really weird. So I figure, you know, we rarely talk about it on here because I'm like, ah, it's like flat earth or something, man. Um, but, but you know, as a guy who's clearly well-versed in the world of non-lethal weaponry, you sort of, you know, I see how you 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 sometimes, uh, I don't know, you know, would you'd be the one to ask, I guess. So, you know, what, what is with this craziness? I lost the question in there somewhere. <laughs> what do you Why make of this targeted individual thing? It's, what do you want me to address? <laughs> the whole, the whole like quote unquote phenomenon. Because in the book, you're like you say that, you know, it's not, it's unlikely. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to believe. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's not. It's, it, it, it's fantasy. Again, which it? Targeted individual, the whole idea of targeting people who are like harassed by, by the government and 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 sort of like oh, with electronic. You're talking about TIs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, I should have used the. I guess I should have used the. Uh, yeah. The yeah. Whole the acronym. Thing, um, targeted individuals. Um, well, it's interesting um, that uh, we. we been at a number of conferences. I haven't been back for a few years, but uh, biannually they were having a conference at uh, Etland in Germany on the European work on non-lethal weapons, and uh, I was picketed there. Uh, in fact, uh, they came out with the Pulitzer <laughs> armed guards for the uh, conference because it does uh, bring out uh, Frankly, crazies. Um, it's actually a terribly complex uh, issue. Um, I think some of them certainly believe that certain events uh, are happening to them and that the government is involved. Um, what is not well understood is the level of paranoia and schizophrenia that are you know, in the standard population, um, low estimates on the way are like around 2%. Uh, so when you extrapolate that uh, in the U.S. to, you know, what, 320 million, we're talking about millions of folks out <laughs> yeah, there. That's a lot of people. Seriously disturbed. Yeah. Um, and paranoia, as we know, is that people think that things are uh, after them. Now, there was uh, a kind of a related phenomenon called my labs at the beginning of the UFO arena. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, people who believe that they have been abducted by military personnel and examined and that they're running it. 
unfortunately, one of the key individuals who was uh, offering this idea uh, was literally with the um, Austrian equivalent of, uh, of our NASA, was uh, an astrophysicist. And I frankly took him to task because there are several aspects to that, and that is how would you do that? Um, I mean, you end up with some vast number of people, and if they believe the government's involved in it, and if you go to understand that this has been around for decades, yeah, yeah, that um, a lot of it predates uh, certainly the establishment of the con- uh, satellite constellations that are out there. That now, I mean, people are very familiar with GPS. Uh, I imagine some of your young listeners probably don't even remember a time when it wasn't around, but in <laughs> yeah. those days we actually had to read maps and things like oh, that yeah. to, to get around. Yeah. And so if you say, you start looking at the number of people who would be necessary uh, to accomplish the kinds of things, I mean, the numbers are just overwhelming. Yeah. And so I also had pointed out, uh, I think I did this in in, uh, UFOs, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, and talked about, you know, if you did that, it would be exceedingly high risk from an institutional perspective because if you got caught, I mean, obviously it would be patently illegal, and I'm familiar with some of the, you know, very high-profile cases that uh, make these assertions, and I do not, but as I've told one individual, some may know, just said, if what he told me is true, he belongs in jail. You know, if they were harassing civilians for whatever uh, purposes. Yeah. And yet, like I say, you have a substantial number of people who believe these sorts of things are happening to them. And I think in most of the cases, a straight medical diagnosis, and I have been, I get emails from such individuals from time to time, and I usually respond by saying, you know, ethically, I think I must tell you to seek competent psychiatric assistance. (laughs) I don't appreciate that, but I really think that that's, you know, more likely to explain what's going on. Now, if you want to get into abductions and some of the other things, we can address that, which I think is a little bit different. So, how do you think? Uh, where would you like to go? Well, what's well, you sort of from the way you said that, it sounds like that's something you'd like to segue into. So that's fine with me. Let's let's keep rolling. So, what do you what do you think's going on with the abduction phenomenon? Because it's uh, from from an outsider perspective looking at it, to me, it's just interesting that. It was so exploded in such renown, or whatever you want to call it, uh, infamy or whatever. It got burst into the zeitgeist, uh, you know, in the 1980s. But now it's just sort of like, I know there's some abduction researchers out there, but it's like seems to have come to quite uh, quite a fizzled out, if you will. So to me, it's like I find that interesting. But what do you well, think I, I about the phenomenon itself? Out, depends on to whom you speak. Um, but you know, at its peak. I used to uh, say, well, if the, if this is E.T., you know, coming here on UFOs and doing this, what we have is an airspace management uh, problem. 
Yeah, where are you parking all these crap? <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. That's it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I recall a similar argument from Jacques Vallée where it's like if if all the people they think were being abducted were like the sky would be teeming with UFOs. You wouldn't even need to, you know, you wouldn't need to be looking for sightings because you just look up like you see a plane. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I also point out, however, that there are reports of contact between humans and sentient non-human entities that have been going on throughout the entirety of human history. Absolutely, yeah. And that you find these in all cultures and reports of them. Of course, they vary considerably. Uh, Having spent a lot of time in Hawaii, the Manahuni were, uh, you know, kind of what was there. But the we folk in various places, fairies, and, and then you have giants and you know, this wide variety uh, of entities. But what's of interest is that, again, ubiquitous, and it appears in all cultures in various forms and whatnot, that these folks arrived in little metal craft and things is actually generally a fairly new wrinkle on it. And this gets back to the, you know, one of our early statements and what is the impact of human consciousness and how does that interact with these sorts of things and I happen to think that A, we don't understand it but B, it is a critical component to whatever it is is going on and uh, let me give you a a specific uh, example, this guy is now known um when I first heard of this particular case, uh, he had not become uh, visible uh, because he was uh, extremely high level uh, in the intelligence uh, community, very straightforward. And uh, what happened was, in he's not quite sure, he thinks it's around 91, he's living in northern Virginia and wakes up, and here are three uniformed entities standing next to his bed. And um, these are not military uniforms as we know them, but, uh, you know, he still said they were uniformed. And then something happens, and the next thing they know, they wake up. He and his wife wake up, and they're outside uh, in whatever it was they were wearing to bed that night and scared to death, obviously, a fair amount of time, you know, had passed. Yeah. Um, and said, you know, we got to get inside before they come back and whatnot. Uh, in this particular case, there's a number of physical attributes that had uh, taken place. So you had something that was quantifiable, and um, there was a hole in the back of his neck, uh they more recently had some uh, fMRIs done, and it looks like something is uh, there's a vacancy uh, yeah. somewhere in the center of the brain area. Yikes. Uh, the point is, we've heard many, many stories like this, but it, it was really unusual when you find somebody with these kind of credentials um, saying, yeah, it, it happened to me, too. 
and has you know no I to this day has no idea of what what it was. His wife similarly, who has does not have the recollection that he does at a conscious level, but had a number of physical symptoms, including vaginal bleeding and some of those things that believed to be directly related to whatever the experience was. Strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think part of what I what, what I meant in a sense of how you don't see it as much is like you know uh, with John Mack gone and Bud Hawkins gone and David Jacobs kind of receding from the spotlight. It's like the the big three of abductions of uh, there's really no one to sort of like uh, carry the banner for it either. It's just kind of well, interesting. John was a personal friend and we had discussed these things and I think what a lot of people don't understand is that. You know, he and I would agree, uh, I think, quite strongly in the complexity of these issues and that it's just not simple, you know, little gray guys from Zeta Reticuli come up and, you know, zap you or reptilians or, you know, pick your, uh, you know, pick your entity. Yeah. Um, And one of the things that bothers me in the descriptions that have taken place globally uh, where you have certain things that are, are ed- description of entities that take place in certain areas that seem to have a, a, a geographical location to it. And you go, no, wait a minute, you want me to believe that these guys have crossed the universe, uh, you know, and they have the capability to do that, and then they have carved out territory here on Earth? Um, you know, just defies common sense. Yeah. What do you think of, uh, uh, and I know it came up in the book, uh, I think, I want to say, uh, I think it was in the Skinwalker uh, chapter, but um, I've had a person on the show who had a personal experience with a portal, and in, as I said, in the Skinwalker book, you mentioned a portal story. Have you, what are your thoughts on, on portals in general? Like, uh, have, you, have you sort of had any experiences with, uh, with that phenomenon, and, and have you looked at sort of that phenomenon? Because I feel like it's kind of like... I feel like it's on the cusp of being being sort of an interesting thing that that uh, starts bubbling up more and more uh, going forward. Yeah. Um, well, as I point out in the book, um, I was with uh, Bob the day that he actually bought the ranch, and uh, alone spent that night uh, on the ridge line uh, overlooking the, the. I mentioned Skinwalker Ranch is just pretty much perfectly flat, and then to the north was an escarpment that rose uh, a couple of hundred feet up on the top of the mason. So I was sitting up there where he could observe uh, what was going on, uh, and which nothing of particular interest came to me. But more to your point, it does appear that there are certain areas that, uh, you know, colloquially have been called um, portals, uh, but uh, certainly areas of intense uh, psychic phenomena. And, of course, what happened at the ranch, we had, you know, a wide variety of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But, uh, you know, of course, Sedona comes to mind as an area that uh, people talk about. Um, Rapanui uh, or also known as uh, Easter Island, is one where 
things happen. And there do seem to be a number of places around the world. Um, and I've done work in, in Europe as well and been told about places over there that are very similar to this but tend to be more locally known. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh like I said, it's I feel like I'm hearing more stories, let's put it that way, about portals lately than I than uh, I have in a long time, if ever. So it's like to me I think uh who knows, maybe there's a <laughs> maybe there's a loosening between the two sides you know, or something. Yeah, I gave you my Jesse Ventura story that's uh, related to that. Um, he was here. Yeah, that's a weird story. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Please do. That's I remember that story from the book, and I was like, "What yeah. a what a dick." Well, they were here <laughs> filming uh, for a um, program called Conspiracy Theory, and if I might digress, uh, one of the things I really objected to was a different uh, episode in which they were dealing with targeted individuals, and I thought really taking advantage of some very troubled people in a way that's uh, unethical. Um, but anyway, Ventura was here, and the I had been contacted before they came. Um, ostensibly, the topic was to be civilians in space, and that made sense because we've talked about Bob Bigelow, and of course, by that time, he had Bigelow Aerospace, uh, Rotan, was uh, also a personal friend. Uh, I mentioned that Bert, uh, in my UFO book, Bert actually provided a um, uh, forward for it. I, I'd actually asked him for a blurb, you know, good stuff, read the book. And instead, he came back and laid out uh, his own personal sighting. And people don't know, Bert is one of the premier uh, aviators in, in the entire world, and uh, so you can't say he really doesn't understand, you know, what he was seeing there. Um, so anyway, that that uh, that made sense, and they sent me a list of questions, and it was all about space. And I had been there when Bert uh, had put uh, Mike Melville into space the first time on a civilian, totally civilian enterprise had put a civilian. Uh, into um, so that was me, and we and we talked for a couple of hours and did the did the interview. And some people who have complained, they, they said they noticed uh, that uh, I was it was like I was trying to get away. Now what had happened was the interview was over, and I was actually starting to get up to take the little microphone pack uh, off the back of my belt. Yeah. And an idiot from the sideline goes, what about Skinwalker Ranch? And I said, I thought we agreed not to talk about that. And um, that was obviously one of the phrases that they actually ended up using because they, it turns out the whole thing was an ambush to talk about the ranch. But uh, one of the things that you know he had asked me about was, you know, could I get him on the ranch? No. And I said, besides, you'd be really bored. And this gets to the the main story here. Yeah. And the portal issue. It is not as if something happens every day. If you sit there and, you know, at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, the UFOs appear or something like that. <clears throat> there were a number of very, 
very strange, highly dramatic uh, instances that uh, took place. But when you amortize that, you know, over the six years that uh, we were there and, you know, things that went on with Terry before that, you know, it's just, you know, it's totally unpredictable. Right, right. And in, I don't know if I did it in this book, I did in uh, UFOs, when I talked about I came up with a concept of precognitive sentient phenomena. Right, yes, that's in my notes to talk to you about, yeah. so good man. And I had mentioned this to him, and I said, it seems like there was some entity, some sentient thing that was in control. Now, sometimes it's called the trickster or Coca-Cola or you know, has a bunch of names. Again, appears uh, in folklore around the world. But the point was that it, A, was in charge. No doubt about who's in charge. And would present us with various phenomena and it seemed to know how we would respond to the phenomena before we had even encountered it. And thus it was precognitive in the way that it knew what we were going to do before we did it, sentient, uh, clearly intelligent, and phenomena beyond belief. And we had just, and you know, the whole first chapter of the book has to do with some of the things that have happened there. I also recommend the book by uh, uh, George Knapp and Colm Kelleher, oh, yeah. Search for the Skinwalker, uh, which has it in, in more detail. Yeah, it's a great book. But, uh, you know, again, a portal, did it happen? Absolutely. Nightly? Nope. Right, right. Predictably? Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Frustrating? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that could be... <laughs> That that could be like a that could be a plot for like an Oscar winning movie. If somebody see somebody like on a ranch like that sees a portal, and then they spend the rest of their life waiting for the portal to open again, and maybe right before they die, the portal does. So <laughs> there you go. We just wrote an Oscar winning movie here tonight on the show, uh, John. Tell give that to Victoria. Maybe she can <laughs> get it made. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's it, 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 much like a lot of the phenomenon, uh, at least as far as like. Uh, the you know not the psi ability but like the the UFO phenomenon we're we're generally at the mercy of the phenomenon itself you know it's not doesn't seem like there's much we can do to really conjure it. Well, that, that's an excellent example because you know when we talk about UFOs we talk about generally these phenomenal cases and I put Bent Waters kind of at the top of uh, my list there but the Phoenix Lights. Um, and there's a whole series of things. It, certainly what happened uh, with um, the uh, yeah, fated giant uh, where the missiles got taken offline here, Soviet uh, having similar kinds of in, uh, instances that happened. Um, very, very dramatic. And you, But you pile them up. You know, on top of each other, and it's like, wow, you know, this is happening. You know, go out tonight, and this will happen. When you recognize that, you know, you spread that over, you know, at least 70 years, not longer, and over a globe, and they're actually fairly rare occurrences. Having
having said that, because of the ubiquitous availability of uh, you know, cell phones and, and as well as just uh, normal surveillance uh, videos that are being taken, um, I had a I was doing a talk recently, and somebody said, you know, well, why aren't these happening now? I said, well, reality is they're coming in almost daily, and you look on the net or something like Filer's Files that has a pretty good uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. repertoire on them. And, yeah, they are continuing, and it, it is happening. And um, But it is in charge. Yeah. And, yeah, and like uh, it's like you're right about that. I've heard that argument, too, from people where it's like, well, there's all these cell phones everywhere. It's like this, yeah, and there's all these UFO videos everywhere <laughs> if you go on YouTube. Like, if there isn't a dearth of UFO videos, trust me, uh, there's tons of them. Most of them are pretty lousy, but, you know. It is, but you got to remember that uh, when these things happen, it's usually uh, kind of by surprise. Right, exactly, yeah. Somebody has to have the camera you know, where they can get it and ready. Uh, there's another case that I talked about, a guy that I knew who was a uh, actually retired Air Force working down at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base living in Albuquerque, interested in the topic. And so one Saturday afternoon, he's out uh, working in his garage. It's open, and he looks up, and here's a UFO with a unique uh, design just hovering there and periodically covered by clouds, and, and he watched it for a while, let it go. And this went on for about an hour and a half. But he then said, you know, I had a camera with film sitting in the garage and I never thought to go pick it up and take a photograph. Right, right. And I can't explain that. Yeah, that seems to be that that is a, a frequent uh factor in a lot of these events. And it seems like it's not a coincidence, obviously. And it's like yep. to me it, it it seems like it might be it's a it's 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 produced almost maybe by the phenomenon. Where it's like it, or or I guess in a sense by the person seeing it too, where it's like you're so enamored with what you're experiencing that uh, to look away for a, even a second is is unthinkable. But it is in control. <laughs> yeah. Now tell me about your ayahuasca experience because that's kind of one of my bucket list uh, experiences that I'd like to have. Uh, so anytime I get a chance to talk to somebody who's done it, uh, I'd like to know more about it. Yeah, we can certainly help you out there. I've uh, dealt with shamans uh, in many places. Uh, ayahuasca, for those not familiar with it, this is a brew that is made uh, in uh, Amazon. What you have to do is take... Uh, at least two disparate vines, and you put them together and cook them, uh, and it provides uh, something that the shamans use to contact spirits. Um, we do know that uh, DMT or dimethyltryptamine is supposedly the psychoactive substance that's in there, uh, though I will tell you my observation is that psychopharmacology does not explain the range of effects that I've, you know, personally observed. Mm -hmm. um, we have one 
shaman in particular, uh, Ron Wheelock, who is known as the gringo shaman down in uh, Iquitos. And I uh, certainly recommend, if anybody's interested, that he's a guy to go to. One of the key aspects of imbibing is knowing your shaman. Um, Because there's not a lot of quality control. (laughs) Yeah. And shamans have their own uh, recipes and whatnot. Interestingly, many of the indigenous shamans go to Ron uh, to get their material. Um, So anyway, uh, what happens is this is a quasi-religious ceremony normally with the shamans um, in this area, and most of the ones have, have been involved in it looks a lot like um, fundamentalist Catholic, and that has a lot to do with the area. The Catholic priests were the ones who did a lot of the uh, civilizing of of this area. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have the um, uh, initial ceremony, lots of smoke involved usually, and this has to do with it's like smudging, uh, you know, protecting uh, psychically the area that you're going to be operating in. Uh, the individuals then are called up and they're given a cup. And what happens is the shaman kind of intuits how much uh, material they, uh, this every particular individual gets. And it is god-awful. The, yeah, I've heard that, yeah. Uh, the hardest part, frankly, is getting it down. You do not want to sip it. Um, I've had very little encounter. My wife is a devotee and has been using this uh, for years and has had many mystical experiences. And she literally has a, another world uh, that... Uh, she goes to and is recognized, and I might mention that the, you know, in the Amazon, the shamans address this as the medicine, and they really do see medicinal purposes uh, to it. And also, there's a number of different types of ayahuasca, and used for different reasons, healing being one of those, visions uh, being one. Uh, prognostication, uh, another. Um, So you take this, and then the shamans begin their icaros. The icaros are songs or chants. And according to the traditions that I'm aware of, is that as they become initiates, they're usually trained for an extended period of time with a senior shaman, um, that they are given, and I mean, this is more like divination, uh, psychically given the uh, ikaros that they are going to chant. And they do this for hours, and it's absolutely amazing. I have quite a bit on the tape. Uh, since I rarely drank, I was usually assigned the task of... Uh, being the one who was controlling, and it was tape recorder uh, in those days, to listen to this thing and the melody. And, and it also literally creates a field effect. Hmm. 
I've had experiences just being in the vicinity of you know the, the ceremonies that are going on and not uh, having had any of the uh, material to uh, to drink. Um, again, responses vary. I do recommend uh, Rick Strassman's book. Uh, if anybody's going to look at this, one is the DMT, the Spirit Molecule, um, because um, this is um, you know he, he. I might mention Rick was an MD working at the University of uh, New Mexico, and was specifically authorized to. Um, uh, experiment with um, the substance. There's very little, you know, controlled experimentation yeah. has been done. Again, most of this is, you know, out in in the jungle. Right, right. And um, so, um, uh, again, he he has the books that um, uh, do this and kind of. Um. Did you? Oh, go ahead. Huh? You start breaking up on me now, I think. No, the. Um, oh. So anyway, um, so you have you know that uh, aspect to it. Now I'm, I would also mention we have done it in uh, Ecuador, in um, uh, Peru. In Peru, we engaged in uh, Santo Daime. Um, are you familiar with that? No, no. Tell me okay, about that. That's a, actually a, a religion, and um, the um, so this is it was one of the fastest growing uh, religions uh, in the area, and they use some ayahuasca. Though Victoria said it's really quite weak uh, by comparison <laughs> to what we've done uh, with Ron, and. Um, the, uh, there's also there a lot of movement with the shamans we've dealt with in uh, Peru and uh, Ecuador. It's usually pretty dark most of the time. It's usually just kind of a small light uh, available, and there's also attendance. Now, one of the things I should mention, um, <clears throat> people worry about, uh, ayahuasca will never become a recreational drug. Um, because there are side effects that are quite dramatic, and uh, for serving, it, you go through a process of purging. So regurgitation is kind of uh, happening consistently, but uh, a fair number of people start running at the other end, and there's oh, boy. some natives who are available to get you to the uh, outhouses. Yikes. Um one of the things I just brought up that I, I want to quote, because I had talked about Strassman's book, and um, as, you know, again, he was doing this uh, in a laboratory under controlled conditions, and the quote was, we enter into invisible realms, ones we cannot normally sense and whose presence we can scarcely imagine. Even more surprising these realms seem to be inhabited. Mm, yeah, that's the yes, exactly. I mean, that, I think that's why everybody's so, or people who are familiar with this, are so uh, tantalized by the whole idea. Yeah. Well, I let me just 
say this is not for the timid. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, what you're saying about the side effects, yeah, I've heard these similar stories that it's just oh, like a, it's a, a grueling experience. Yeah, yeah, no, it, like I say, you, it's, uh, every, everybody has their bowl when, when you're, you know, you know, sitting there around in the dark and <laughs> But uh, I was thinking more of the uh, psychological uh, impacts as mm. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, can be terrifying. Now, what's interesting is I've, again, sat in on many, many ceremonies. Um, I have seen people just literally terrified, screaming, yelling for their mother, and, you know, all of these sorts of things. But the next morning they go, wow, that was just what I needed. Um, and that's uh, another aspect of it is you, there's usually no hangover. I'd say these ceremonies usually ran till you know, 3 o'clock or so uh, in the morning. And the biggest thing is people would tend to sleep late. Um, when we worked with um, uh, some of the shamans, in, uh, indigenous shamans in Peru, then they usually followed up. With the next day, we would they would do a bathing with a flower, special flower water, and again repeating the acaros uh, as, uh, as part of the ceremony. Um, I, I should mention when we first uh, were working again with indigenous shamans in Iquitos, or not actually, we're out in the jungle in the general area there. Um, as they were creating the brew, you know, they would chant the arcaros, and the point is that putting intention into the material as it was being developed. Ah, I see, yeah. And one of the interesting, I asked uh, Hamanamari, which was on the shaman they were, I said, how did you ever come up with this? You know, why would people take these disparate substances, put them together, and cook them and all of that? Yeah, it's an interesting question, yeah. Her response was, the plants told us to. Interesting. And, you know, there, there are lots of uh, uh, various kinds of uh, you know plant healings that have come out of there. In fact, biopiracy if you want to discuss that, but that's been one of the key issues where Big Pharma has sent anthropologists in and, and they find out what the shamans are doing, uh, collect the uh, samples, bring it out, synthesize it, and they make a you know huge profit and the uh, indigenous people get screwed. Yeah, I saw you. I learned about that from your book. I was like, well, that's crazy. I never even thought of that, yeah. Yeah. It, it is a, a huge, you know, ethical problem. But it's interesting. Uh, again, a program that I just talked about here. Somebody they were complaining about, uh, you know, the you know, people not knowing, uh, indigenous folks not knowing anything. And there are many areas where, you know, they can teach us quite a bit. And one of the things that, unfortunately, Havana Mori has transitioned herself uh, recently, but, you know, said, you know, just ask. the you know, We can work with the plants, and they will tell us what we need to do uh, to 
create cures for these various illnesses. Yeah. Interesting. Now, when you were on the ayahuasca, did you encounter any entities or anything? I, I know your your wife has, uh, but have you have you uh, encountered any? What what is? Tell me a little bit about your wife's it experience. It was um, extremely colorful. Um, yeah, we we do anticipate uh, that James Cameron has uh, you know if he remember his movies and you know the brilliant colors that are yeah. in there. and some of them quite frankly are colors that do not exist uh, in consensus reality very very difficult uh, to describe yeah interesting um, I'm a control freak and I, I acknowledge that so I don't like this notion of just letting go <laughs> and whatnot. And <laughs> so uh, it's uh, problematic one of the things I do recommend in, in this area and it's sort of emerging though is for um, uh, using ayahuasca in some areas of uh, treating PTSD and many people are finding that uh, quite useful again not for the timid not the first uh, stop but um, have had quite a bit of success because the people go out and have these confrontational, again, psychical, confrontational uh, experiences and frequently lead to a deeper understanding of what is causing the uh, uh, psychic trauma. Yeah. Interesting. So tell me about the entities, though. (laughs) I understand your wife encountering what, what What are these beings like and what do they have to say? I don't know. We it's interesting we do not discuss those things and she will often take months to process it and it, you know one of the first experiences we had down there and I didn't find out until some time later that she had an experience of um basically encountering God and just says A happened, B no we're not discussing it. You know, wow. A, a very personally intense emotional uh, experience. Now she does believe in the, the goddess or mother ayahuasca and believes that people are called to it. Um it is not something one wants to do frequently unless you're the shaman because the shamans do drink a small amount and they go along on the journey with you. Um, we had talked about John Mack, and when John was here, we were discussing it, um, and he said he had four experiences. It had been several years before that, but it took that much time to process and integrate uh, the experience. So it's not like uh, people from the outside tend to run. Well, I want to have, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there for a week, so I want five ceremonies. Oh and Jesus! No, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> That's crazy. All right, fair enough. That I I I hear where you're coming from. Now, uh, I guess the last uh, sort of big point I want to talk to you about uh, before we wrap things up um, was, and I feel like you kind of. You know, we've kind of like 
put together a lot of the disparate pieces of that over the course of this conversation tonight. And this this year, what you call the step back concept, which I really like a lot. But I guess my question, and then I'll sort of give a thumbnail and you can delve more into it, which is sort of like we need to take a step back, look at all the information we have and sort of an, a, um, you know, an unbiased sort of just a, just a blank slate, if you will, and sort of just take all the information and then try and sort of synthesize it you know, possibly using like human uh, machine learning and AI and that kind of stuff, hopefully in the future, and find some kind of like uh, patterns that that aren't there initially. Correct? That's sort of the idea. Yeah, this is a concept I came up with a number of years ago. I have offered it in several places. Unfortunately, I have never found anybody who was willing to fund it. Yeah, I guess that's the that's the question I had for you in a sense. Uh, who's the we? Who's the who? Who do you think should be doing this though? Well, it, it has not happened. And let me describe the process mm-hmm. a little bit more. What I suggested was that we get a number of people who have had broad experiences, um, maybe myself, where you enter the field and say we're going to get together sequestered i.e. they're going to live together for probably three days or something like that and do what we used to call monstergrams and maybe it can be done on computers now I'm not sure Uh, but the point is to have people explain or describe their observations without putting values on it i.e., it's not a UFO, it's not a poltergeist, it's something. It's You describe, I've got balls of light or all the various things, and you just describe the observation without saying what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a specific example where I had, uh, had encountered this. Uh, I mentioned I was the uh, president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies for a long time, and I answered a lot of mail. And I would frequently get letters saying, well, I wasn't close to death, but, and then would describe out-of-body states, uh, interaction with entities, blah, 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 things that sounded very much like classic NDEs. Um, so the point and the step back is you would do this, but on a much broader scale, and again, bring in people who have had experiences in many, many phenomena and take the first amount of time, and you actually put this on a board. The reason I like the monstergram as opposed to computers, but this is where you can actually see these things. And once you've got all of these observations down, then physically step back, look at that, and begin macro-pattern analysis. Say, okay, how do these things fit together? What aspects are, where, where are we seeing commonalities? And then from that, you know, do the derivation and say, okay, how, what inferences can be drawn from this? And what does this mean for, you know, for research or for redesigning? Um, yeah, I had this with with Bob when, when I was the first one in NIDS. Mm-hmm. And I had suggested to him that we do not just this, but in the various things that we ought to uh, make observations in areas that were of interest and not institutionally create boxes. 
Um, but being an engineer, the first thing he did is step up and say, well, this is near-death experience, this is uh, <laughs> uh, UFOs, these are blah, 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 blah. You know. And there's a great, particularly with engineers, tendency uh, to do that. You can't fault them for it because this is the way they classically ad- address problems. Um I'm also suggesting here that is the problem, is that we delineate very quickly what's in, what's out, and how do you approach these things. Um, and again, what I think we need to do is to you know, take off the parameters and look at it from a fresh uh, perspective and see where that leads us. I do think... You know, my bias, uh, again, is that uh, one of the common factors is going to be human consciousness, even in areas where we're seeing the existence of, you know, physical phenomena. Yeah. Well, again, though, the, it, it, the problem, in a sense, is, like, who's the we? You know what I mean? It's like it's hard to get anyone to uh, – it's hard in general just to get just – just to sort of, like, get an organized uh, attack, you know, attack on this thing. So it's – that's, I think, the challenge in a big way for this. Because, like you said, uh, looking at it from the government perspective, it's like there's no one in charge. And that's the same you can say for just about any real, like, paranormal field in general. There's really nobody in charge. It's not like the National Cancer Institute or whatever, you know, wherever the, uh, the, the the groups are to tie it back to the earlier part about how these phenomena are as complex as those diseases. Like, those diseases have institutions devoted to uh, to trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? Well... And that's interesting, and you know, the last two chapters of the book is where I discuss the flame and then the integration uh, issues, um, and I do see that as a problem. One of it uh, is I have done estimations, and others tend to agree that on a global basis, the amount of money involved in the research for all of these topics is probably around $10 million a year. Um, let me compare that just uh, a fact for in the U.S. alone, we're doing about $125 billion a year just in cancer. So you can tell we're talking very, very small amounts coming from uh, usually individual donors. Um, thus, the people doing the research uh, you know, are very jealous about protecting donors and not an area in which you're going to go out and, you know, spread the information and whatnot, information power. Right. Unfortunately, that's the antithesis of what needs to be done Mm. because we need macro-integrated studies on these areas. And yet, you know, the classic follow the money, um, therein lies a good bit of the problem. I also, I mean, this is one of the things I point out in, from a mechanistic viewpoint. Um, we've spent about $17 billion on the Large Hadron Collider trying to determine what is the God particle. And, you know, came up with uh, Higgs boson. And pretty shortly thereafter, we found out there were pentaquarks uh, that were uh, below that. But it's all materialistic driven. And we're prepared to do that, even though the real interest in that would be, you know, for a few theoretical physicists. 
But we take these other issues, such as continuation of consciousness beyond bodily death, I have not gotten into that much, but it impacts 100% of the population. Yeah. So you do not find a high correlation between need and where we uh, commit resources. Yeah, and it's crazy in a sense because, uh, you know, I know we're coming up on the end here, but it's it's worth noting, uh, yeah, you you know, you did, you did a lot of research into healers and stuff, and it's just like, it's crazy in a sense, just the disparity. <laughs> if they're spending that much money, like $125 billion on cancer research, it's like, wouldn't the smart thing to do just like take a million and, and look at the <laughs> look at some of these some of these things? It's it's kind of like you don't need a lot of funding really until uh, you find you know so you, so you can maybe find like uh, something worth pursuing in this stuff. It's crazy. It is. It really is. It's really like makes you wonder like you know it's if, if it's just this. Uh, it, you know, systematic uh, institutionalization or something. You know, where it's just like they don't want they don't want this. If, if they spend 125 billion on it, they don't want to find the answer to to this right, well, like it, in a uh, cut and dry sure, way. Maybe just this part of the issue is you know again the mecha, uh, materialistic world, uh, allopathy. Um, you know, a little over a century ago, a uh, century they're split between homeopathy and uh, allopathic medicine was about 50-50. And the problem became who was funding the medical schools. And they were prepared to do that, provided you, you know, taught things that says they're going to need drugs that I'm going to sell to you. Yeah. And hence we've gone down that. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, a few decades ago we briefly... Uh, had uh, NIH uh, take over and come up with alternative medicine, but even that is very, very small by comparison to uh, you know, other you know, forms of medicine. And as the fundamental difference is, our, again, the, in, in the West in particular, an intense belief in the materialistic world. One of the things we haven't hit, but I think is really a critical issue, is one that I stress in the book, is, and that is the spirit world, uh, that um, throughout the areas that I've uh, visited, um, the notion of a spirit world is, you know, very, very widespread, commonly accepted, and literally essential to what you're doing. In the West, if there is a spirit world and a real world, they are separate and distinct, if you even accept the possibility of a spirit world. Uh, I use Brazil as a classic example because there are people who, the ones that I've dealt with, who are highly educated in Western education systems and yet can integrate that with the various forms of spiritist religions uh, because it works. Yeah. Well, hopefully someday... uh we'll get over this collective uh, social block that I lamented at the beginning of the conversation and, and really, you know, I don't know, civilization will open its mind again to these ideas. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, John. I really, I loved this interview and um, like there was so much more, there is so much more in the book that people uh, are going to want to check out. We didn't even get a chance to talk about here um, on the show. I, I, 
found the whole thing about telepathic communications with dolphins and whales to be just tremendous stuff and, and stuff about healing and healers and hot coals and remote viewing and a whole uh a whole third of the book is on sort of uh the spirit world stuff. So um people really want to pick this up. It's a fantastic book. And it's the kind of thing like you read and it's like you know, each story makes you just wonder about oh yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about the death touch. I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna ask you about the uh the death touch. Good yes, yes, that's in the book as well, folks. So yeah, there's just a just a just a wealth of stories in here that are truly uh truly mind bending and uh, really make you think uh you know, that the world is a lot more fantastic than even than even I imagined and I've been talking about this stuff for uh for over a decade, so um, I can't thank you enough. I wish we'd gotten you on the show earlier, but I'm glad we managed to get get it done uh, tonight. So uh, thank you again, sir, and uh, have a great night. Well, thank you. Hope you're not inundated. <laughs> I'm okay for now. We'll see what happens uh, next week. We're supposed to get another storm next week. We, dr- we got two feet yesterday or a couple days ago, so it's been crazy. But uh, thanks again, and uh, have a great night. Well, thank you. There you go, folks. That was Colonel John Alexander. The book is Reality Denied, First-Hand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. Absolutely fantastic stuff. It's from the folks at Anomalist Books. And I want to mention them especially because uh, over the years, uh, Patrick Weege and the folks at Anomalist were huge, huge, huge supporters of Anomal of America. They... Uh, they really like were were one of the first sites to to put us on the map, and so you know they 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 were just uh, generous generous supporters of the show and uh, put us over all the time and sent us books all the time and in turn of course then we uh, had a number of the authors from the Anomalous Books catalog on the show over the years and some of our best greatest guests came uh, via the folks at Anomalous. Uh, thinking about. Perhaps most noteworthy uh, is Adam Davies. Adam Davies wrote a book uh, with Anomalous to Books, and that's what uh, put him on the map for me. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. You know, we've, we've become just super tight. And, and as I mean, his, his stamp on the show is indelible with the legendary Portal story. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to take a moment there and put over Anomalous Books because uh, – they are huge, uh, huge, huge backers. I was gonna say huge guys. I don't even know what that means. They're they are huge, huge backers of Banal America and uh, Daily Grail. Also, they were the they were the other site that really uh, supported us in a huge way. Uh, Greg, Greg Taylor of Daily Grail. I've tried to get Greg Taylor on the show uh, in the past, and he he's a modest, shy man. Apparently, he will not. He will not come on the show. He, uh, but I've talked to him, so it's not like he doesn't like me or something. Uh, we're we're good friends, so it's just like, come on, man. Um, but yeah, Dilly Grail and Anomalist, uh, we always uh, we always were popping up on there uh, when we first started, and really gave us a big boost. So thank you to those guys. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so somebody on Twitter was like today. Uh, is this the last show? It's like, dude, no. Like, you, you'll know when the last show is, man. Um, but I, but I don't know when the last show is, so there's no way that uh, you'll know. Um, our original plan for the finale uh, went off the rails, so um, yeah. So we have a backup plan, and uh, I'm in the process of working out the logistics of it. So if I were to tell you a end date uh like a like a sort of like i don't know a predicted 
time frame, I would say like the end of April, maybe like the first week of May. Uh, but we'll see what happens. It's been a crazy <laughs> this this has been like a crazy landing here uh, through through the end, and it it's partially in a sense too, just because of like it's just been this crazy year. It seemed like everything got thrown off with the double episode and, and messed me all up. And then, you know, just as we sort of started getting things back up again uh, to wind down the show, I just got slammed by this crazy uh, crazy storm last week that, that knocked the power out here for four days, folks. Uh, it was out Thursday morning, and it didn't come back until Sunday at noon. And it was like, I, it was, as I said at the beginning of the show here with John, it was actually kind of, a transcendent experience. I wouldn't recommend it to people, but it was certainly like it was like a like a journey into madness. Uh, I called it. I call. I was describing it to somebody. I described it as like like temporary insanity, because you're always sort of like in this in in the now, and you're waiting for for the power to come back, and it's just and you sort of slowly kind of go a little crazy. And you get frustrated and like really mad, and and um, and and you're like, it's like a, it's like, what's it? You know, it's like the expression, not like a, not like sensory overload. It's like sensory, well, whatever the opposite of sensory overload is. You know, it's like sensory deprivation. It's like sensory deprivation. It's like next thing you know, uh, all you've got is your phone, and even though. It's funny when you have power and everything. It's like you can do all kinds of stuff with your phone, but when it's like the only thing you have, it's like really, uh, it's not as great as it seems. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't even know what got me off on that tangent, but uh, I wanted to tell people about that. So yeah, we will. Uh, we'll have a show. We should have a show next week. Uh, hopefully, I'm not th- too thrown off here by this Thursday night. Um, scheduling kind of wiped me out a little bit, to be honest with you. Uh, it was like I'm usually kind of fresh by the start of the week. By the end of the week, everybody's just kind of like, all right, let's just get to the weekend. So, But I think I held my own there with John because I had a lot of interesting uh, things that I noticed in the book that I wanted to talk to him about. And I was glad he delved into it. And uh, I'm glad we covered a whole bunch of different stuff because I didn't want to just focus. Uh, I could have I tried to ring – more info out on on the Bigelow stuff or on the spoon spoon spending uh, spoon bending or any of the topics we could have we could have covered each one of the sort of tent pole topics tonight as a whole show so I'm glad we got to do a whole bunch of different topics um, again with regards to next week I'd say I'd like to do a show on Tuesday um, but it's already Thursday now so it's it's uh, it's possible but unlikely. But I'll also say that, um, you know, with like a month left or so of the show, I would expect us to almost go back to the the, <laughs> the super the super classic edition style of Been All of America, where we're just gonna, uh, you know, maybe next week we'll do a show on Wednesday, or you know, the week after that we'll uh, we'll do a show on Saturday morning. You know, it's just gonna be a little bit crazy, I think, as we things down here. Uh, you know, and interview the last few guests of the season uh, in the series for now. And uh, I guess on that note, I could keep rambling, but who wants to listen to that? Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks to the folks in the chat room. Thanks to Colonel John Alexander, once again, 
The book is Reality Denied, First-Hand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. Uh, it's from Anomalous Books. Punch it into the Amazon. You'll be able to grab it, folks. Uh, and uh, that's it. So until next time, this is Tim and all. Thanking you for listening and signing off.